Uh, it seems like a good idea to bring the church away, and it is. It's fantastic for us to come away and to spend some time together, but I'd like to thank particularly uh, Richard and Charlie and uh, everybody who came along, to uh, particularly the communion ladies as well, who've uh, done everything a little bit differently this morning. It's kind of nice, in a way, to do things differently, but I'm aware of the fact that it's quite hard work, and um, it's made me quite relaxed about preaching this morning. I'm normally extremely nervous at this point, but frankly, I was more nervous as we wired the place up when the projector wasn't working, and this bit seems quite simple, so you'll forgive me if I miss some of the sermon bits and pieces. There's certain things I hate about church services. One of them I've just done. I really don't like that thing where we give out pens and pencils. I'm sorry about that. I don't really like that. Uh, another thing I don't really like in church services is audience participation. We're going to do some of that in a minute. Um, and I've also decided this morning I don't like building church before you do church, so we're going to do it another way some other time. But anyway, it's going to be a difficult morning. But I thought it would be good for us as we come away together and we look at the subject of unity, to take part in what I've called the so easy an idiot could do it unity quiz. Okay, now this is something pitched at approximately A level by current qualification standards. It's very, very, very simple. Now, just like any A level, this is made entirely of multiple choice questions. Okay? Not only are there multiple choice, but there are only two choices. Not only are there only two choices, but neither of the choices is wrong. Okay, this makes it just slightly harder than an A-level, I know, but you'll see most of you will understand the questions uh, and we won't really be scoring. But I will need everybody to take part, and everyone needs to take part and choose one of the two answers. It's very simple. You should fall, every single person in the room should fall into one of the two answers, all right? This is the bit where you have to do something that I really hate doing in church. That's you have to put your hand up. All right, so that's, that's all you have to do. That's the, you're not going to sing, you're not going to dance or anything else. All you have to do is put your hand up. Right, that's it. Simple as that. It's only embarrassing if you do it over and over again like I'm doing now. But all you're going to have to do is put your hand up once for the answers of the questions. So, question number one, okay, is who here really, really likes Marmite? Okay, and who here really, really dislikes Marmite? Okay. So, don't need much time to think about that, because you, you know, and if you've never had Marmite, that you really, really like it, or you really, really dislike it. So, could we have the hands up for the likes? Who here really, really likes Marmite? Excellent. Could you put your hands down? Who here really, really dislikes or just can't stand Marmite? Okay, look around. These are the people you want to spend time with at lunch. These people kind of like the same things <laughs> that you do. Let's do another food one. Who here... Um, Let's do milk chocolate or dark chocolate, all right? Because I kind of think uh, this is supposed to be the unity quiz, and we're going to keep going until I get some unity. So uh, who here prefers dark chocolate to milk chocolate? Would you put your hands up if you prefer? See, I was hoping that most people would like milk chocolate. Okay, if you could put your hands down. And who here likes milk chocolate? That's about 50-50 again. Right, it's all right. I have, I have some special questions to assure unity. I'm sure this one will work. For Christmas dinner... Who here thinks having Brussels sprouts for Christmas dinner is a fantastic idea and everybody should have at least one? Who, like me... Hang on. <laughs> I've got to set up the other one. Who, like me, thinks it's a ridiculous idea and we should simply forget the whole thing? So, would you like to put your hands up if you think we should have at least one Brussels sprout or potentially more? Okay, so these are, these are perhaps people you shouldn't sit near after dinner, should we say, today. Uh, and who thinks, what a ridiculous idea, why do we still have Brussels sprouts? Put your hands up. I'm coming round to your house 
on Christmas Day. I was hoping that was going to go differently and I would better use that as a weapon against Zoe later on in the afternoon. So, this one I'm hoping I can use against Zoe because this is something I feel very strongly about. Who thinks Holby City is a fantastic television program? Right, that would be to put your hands up for the first thing. Who thinks that they would rather pluck out their eyes with a rusty spoon than watch Holby City? Okay? I'm not saying which side I'm on. All right, but I would really like to, to settle this once and for all between Zoe and I. So, does anybody here, and you look like a wise audience, so I'm thinking you're with me on this one, would anybody here make the mistake on a Tuesday night of watching Holby City? Ah. Could I point out this is the Unity quiz, and I gave you a, a clue. We've only got this thing booked till half past three. Right, who, like me, would rather pluck out their eyes with a rusty spoon than watch an episode of Holby City? Ray, bless you. I'm coming around to yours on a Tuesday night. The rest of you have never seen it. Boy, are you lucky. Okay. I stole this next question from the Linfield URC questionnaire from a year or two ago. So, you've probably mostly seen this question before, but this is a more spiritual question. I'm hoping we might find some unity with this one. I would like to know how many gods you believe there are now, this is, I've simplified it from the URC questionnaire because that, that got a lot of people very confused. But I'd like to know, do you believe that there are hundreds of gods, like there's a god in that guitar, there's a god in that tree, there's a god in the sky, there's a god in the sun, there's a god in the ground? Um, do you believe in many, many gods? That's option one. Or do you believe in option two, which is that there is one god uh, in three, let's not get the unity kind of, uh, of the spirit thing confused, but there is one God in three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would you like to put your hand up if you believe that there are many gods, a God in the tree, a God in the ground, a God in the sky? And would you like to put your hands up if you believe that there is one God? He is the Father. Now, have a look around. Oh, leave your hands up, leave your hands up. Have a look around, all you Marmite haters, all you Holby City watchers, <laughs> all you strange people. Because this is the one thing I could find, this is the one question I could think of this morning in which I was pretty sure I could get everybody to put their hand up. When you looked around earlier on, you might have seen people who think a bit like you, um, or some people who don't think and watch Holby City. But <laughs> I have a thing about that, sorry, I'll get over it in a minute. There's only one reason that unites us. There's only one reason that brings us here this morning. And it's not what we like, it's not who we like. It's not what we like to do. The reason we're all here this morning is not because we're all the same. We don't look the same. We don't act the same. We don't like the same things. We don't do the same things. We don't listen to the same music. We don't dress the same. And we will approve and disapprove of some of the actions of everybody in this room. But there's one question I could think of to ask you that I was pretty sure would get everybody to put their hand up. That's the unity we have as a church. That's the reason why we're all here this morning. We all believe in one God. We all have faith in one Lord. That's what our reading from Ephesians talks about. But first of all, the reading that we did earlier on with the children from Ephesians 2, for he himself, it speaks about Christ, is our peace. He's made the two one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility. You see, in almost anything you care to look at, you can find two sides. That reading actually refers to the Jews and the Gentiles. 
you could probably not find a more separated group of people. There was a total apartheid. You were in or you were out. You were liked or you were despised. You were a Jew or a Gentile. And the unity claim made there for Christ is that he is able to restore, he's able to break down the dividing walls between the most different people that you could possibly think of for the example. Now, we're not divided like that this morning. We're not Jew and Gentile. But it talks about two groups. And how many of you know there are always two groups in every situation? There are the Marmite likers, there are the Marmite haters. There are the Holby city watchers and everybody else. There's always two groups. You might be young, you might be old. You might be Christian, you might be non-Christian. You might be a charismatic Christian, you might be a traditional Christian. There's always two groups. I'll simplify them. There's always them and there's us. There's always you and there's me. And there's nothing I can do to stop there being two groups. But Scripture tells us that wherever two or more are gathered together in my name, he says, I am there. Now, I don't think he means I'm there to referee the dispute. I think he means wherever one or more come together, you need me to be there. He's the unit that combines us. He's the thing that enables us, different as we are, because if he's here this morning, then we're called simply to look to him. And then suddenly the dividing wall between us doesn't seem that great. Suddenly the bricks start to look a little bit loose. And if we believe what it says, then he has broken the dividing wall. I mean, I've heard it preached often in church that Christ died to bridge the gap between man and God. And that's true. I've seen, have you seen the little thing where they do a little thing like that and then a gap and then a little thing like that and they drop the cross in? And that's a central part of the message of salvation is that Jesus died to restore, to reconcile a fallen humanity to God. But there's a second part. Christ's salvation also occurred to break down the dividing wall, to restore not just our relationship with God, but to restore the broken relationships between us and each other. Not just between man and God, but also between man and man. And it's that aspect of salvation we're looking at this morning. I want to look at it in four parts. I've said four, now now you'll see I have to look at my notes to figure out what the four are. First of all, I'd like us to recognize that unity is important, that it's a central theme of salvation, it's a central theme of the Bible. Secondly, I'd like us to recognize what we mean when we talk about unity, what unity is and what unity isn't. Thirdly, we're going to look at how we can preserve unity, and finally, some of the dangers and things that might separate us from unity. Now you're going to see how good I am, whether I can remember what all those four are when I come to do them. The importance of unity is highlighted in our first reading. That was the John 17 reading, if you want to turn to that. John 17, verse 20. This is one of my favorite sections of the Bible. It's, it's the longest bit of red, if you've got one of those red uh, highlighting of the word of Jesus Bibles. Right at the end of his ministry, it kind of accelerates the amount of stuff that's in the Bible. The first year or so is covered only in a, first, in a, in a couple of chapters and a few bits and pieces. And as it gets towards the end, the final week takes about like half or a third of the Gospels. And then the final couple of days, in fact, the final few hours, takes pages and pages of Christ pouring out the burden of his heart just as he's about to go to the cross. 
The piece we're quoting here from John 17 comes just after the Last Supper, and we're going to share that together this morning. But the burden of his heart that night, just before he went to the garden, was this. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who believe in me through their message. When he says it's not for them alone, he's talking about the disciples. If you wind back a little bit, you'll see he prays that they will be protected, that they will be uplifted, that they will be enabled to spread the gospel. But this little bit is not for the disciples alone. It's actually for you and for me. He says, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. That would be me. That would be you. That would be us here this morning. So what was the burden on Christ's heart? What was the message he wanted you to hear and me to hear just before he went to the cross? Verse 21. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. That was Christ's prayer for you and for me 2,000 years ago. I don't know how many of you have been praying for something for a couple of days and haven't seen much of an answer or praying for something for a couple of years and haven't seen an answer or are concerned as I am about unity within my own family and don't see God intervening before I come to church in the morning. Christ prayed that 2,000 years ago and I believe he's still waiting for the answer. It was important to him. It was a burden on his heart that we would be united, that Christians would somehow come to represent that complicated unity between God and Christ and the Spirit, that we might somehow be credible witnesses to it. And yet without unity, we appear divided, we appear confused, and Christ disappears and is lost in our arguing. Unity is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, for credibility. He mentions that here. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have to be careful with my outreach hat on what I say here, but there's not really very many outreach strategies in the Bible. It doesn't tell you about pamphlets. It doesn't tell you what songs to sing. It doesn't tell you how to knock on doors. It doesn't tell you how to evangelize. But it does say how to convince people that God is real. It does say how to communicate the fact of the gospel. And it says we'll communicate it when the world sees us as one, when the world sees us united. That was a prayer 2,000 years ago. I don't think with over 50,000 different denominations of the Christian church that we've done a particularly good job of remaining united. Even within our own village, people see three different churches, and even with our own congregation, they might see three, four, five different bodies of people. We've been given the glory that people might see one thing, that one thing that united us when everybody in the room had their hand up is the message that we're communicating. Not the marmite. It's the one thing that matters. That's our credibility. In unity also comes our strength. Uh, I had various examples for this, but my favorite one, and it must be true, because I've heard somebody else preach it, and I checked it on the internet, so this is definitely true. But I really like this little story, even if it isn't true. Does anybody here know the difference between a donkey and a horse? Okay, it's a bigger difference. 
donkeys are a little bit smaller than a horse, that's true. Donkeys have bigger ears than horses, that's true. The particular difference I'm looking for, though, is that donkeys are really, really stupid. And I hope this morning that we're not going to leave this place like donkeys. Let me explain why. If you attack a group of wild horses, or in fact a group of thoroughbred horses or race horses or whatever, if they come under threat, I am reliably informed by the internet that the following happens. The horses, have you ever seen a horse buck where it kicks its legs out and it kicks out and it's really kind of scary and dangerous because horses are heavy and they have heavy shoes and they can kick really, really hard. But that's not the cool thing about horses because one horse on its own kind of kicking just looks a little bit crazy. But if you get a group of horses and they come under threat, maybe a mountain lion or something else threatens a group of wild horses, the horses will in fact work as a team. They'll come together and they'll form a circle. And they'll do this really cool thing. They'll put their heads together in the center of the circle because the heads are the delicate bit. The heads are the bit that they need to protect. And then in a circle with their heads protected on the inside, the circle of horses then all begins kicking out as one. And you know, a circle of horses all kicking out, nothing can come close. They could stop an elephant. They could stop a lion attacking. They can stop more or less anything. It makes a strong unit. They are united. Their heads are together. They've protected what's important, and they're kicking out in all directions, so nothing can come close. You know what I'm going to say next, don't you? Donkeys don't do that. Because donkeys are really, really stupid. But it strikes me that sometimes we act like donkeys, because donkeys do this. Donkeys, if they're under attack form a circle. Donkeys think they're really, really smart. So donkeys like to keep their eye on what's going on. So donkeys form a circle, and they all face in a different direction, and they all look out to see what's coming at them, and then the donkeys kick like crazy, and they kick each other. (laughs) How many of that sounds like a meeting you've had at work, or a meeting or a committee you've had at church, or it sounds like your breakfast table? We can leave here as horses this morning or we can leave here as donkeys. It doesn't matter whether we're together. It matters that we're facing the same way, that we're protecting what's important and we're kicking out only at what is coming in to attack us. That's our unity. That's our strength. If one of us goes off on our own, we don't just weaken ourselves and expose ourselves. If there's not enough horses, the whole group is weakened. Together we are stronger in unity than any individual. If we run off in our own way, we will eventually, even if we can outrun everybody else, we will get caught. We will be hunted down. So, okay, unity is important. It's our strength. It's our credibility. But what is unity? I mean... We have the Brussels sprout likers amongst us here. How can I be united with somebody like that? What is this unity that I'm talking about? Well, what I look like doesn't matter. There's several things that unity in the spirit is, and it isn't uniformity. It isn't that we look alike, that we think alike, that we speak alike, that we sing alike, that we wear the same clothes, or we go to the same places, or we do the same things. That's uniformity, and it isn't what unity is. We need to surprise people with that, by the way, because most of the people I work with think Christians are all exactly the same. So we need to stop aiming for uniformity and start aiming for unity. We need to stop all wearing sandals. We need to stop all having beards. We need to stop all, excuse me, being able to play the guitar. 
there are certain things about Christians that everybody expects. And it's shocking when they realize that we don't all drive Volvos. There's power in that. We need to tell people what our unity is, what our faith is, what we believe, not simply live up to some sort of uniform expectation. Unity also isn't a political balancing act between competing powers and forces. Unity isn't a kind of compromise that you come to, where you basically say, yeah, okay, well, I like this, you like that, we'll both agree to disagree. That's a political compromise. It's a balance of power. It isn't the unity that we're called to. Unity isn't even tolerance of other people who are different to us. Tolerance kind of implies somehow that I'm better than you, but I'm going to put up with you anyway. Tolerance kind of implies that I'm going to actually magnify the understanding of the difference between me and you, and from a point of judgment, I'm going to say, that's all right, I don't like what you do, but I'm going to tolerate it anyway. But really, I'm a bit superior. It's not what unity is all about. To see unity, we need to turn to the Ephesians 4, reading to verse 6 and understand that unity is an impossible, supernatural gift of God. There is nothing you and I can do that will come close to restoring the unity that it mentions in Ephesians 4. There's a sevenfold basis in Ephesians 4 in which we can claim unity with one another. The seven things are this. We are all members of one body, it says, the body of Christ. We all drink of one spirit, the spirit of God. We are all called to one hope, the hope of the gospel. We all serve one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We all stand together in one faith, faith in God. We all share together in one baptism, baptized by the Spirit, and we are all children of one Father, our Heavenly Father. I'm going to leave those seven up there for the rest of the sermon, but that's our challenge. That's the basis from Ephesians 4 of our unity with one another. Now, I could have individually asked you to raise your hand on almost any of those questions, and you probably would have put your hand up to each of them. But Ephesians 4 says that we must make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's that bond of peace again. We heard that in Ephesians 2. That means through the bond of peace granted us by Christ, through his saving Spirit of peace. It is a work of the Spirit. For unity to be present... The gifts of the Spirit have to be present. The Spirit has to be working. I can't stand up here and give a scheme for unity, a program for unity, some bullet points for us to follow as a church to be more united one with another. All we have to do to be united is for each of us individually to make our peace through Christ with other people, to take your spiritual walk and to live it through grace, through peace, through hope, through love. Acting out the gifts of the Spirit. They're not gifts. They're not treasures. They're not 
gimmicks that we get as Christians as a kind of nice Christmas bonus for being Christians. There's a purpose to them. They have a quality and a clarity when you see them for that purpose, which is that this is something we could never do without them. And when the gifts of the Spirit are absent, then unity will be absent. Because Ephesians says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, create as much unity as you can. Because you can't. Unity is not something you can create. It is only something, there's several translations for that, keep, it might be to preserve. But call it preserve or call it keep. That's what we're doing here as a body of Christ today. We've come together to preserve the unity offered us by the Spirit. Not to create it, not to whip it up, not to generate it, not in some frenzy today to make something unreal. But simply to ask God that through a moving of his Spirit in his way, for his purpose, we might not get in the way. So I guess the third and fourth thing I said we were going to talk about are really the same. We can talk about how to keep unity, how to preserve unity, but we can't talk about a scheme for generating it. But the final thing I want to talk about are the dangers to unity. And that's where we can make a difference because while we can't create unity, we are certainly really, really good at destroying it. That's the one thing that we, humanly speaking, as I say, as a family, we managed between the children and Zoe and I and the children to break unity about 15 times before we even came to church this morning. They were pinging hairbands at each other. They were shouting at each other. They were a little bit tired. And sometimes you and I come to church and we're just a little bit tired. And there are people here that will annoy you. I know I annoy Zoe. So there's at least one person here that I really, really annoy, especially on a Tuesday night, about 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock. Anyway, sorry. I'm going to get over Holby City. At least I'm off caravans. Right. To be united, we have to remember where we were at the start of this, when everybody had their hand raised. These are the things that unite us. And I'm going to read through the words in grey, and I would like you simply to respond with the words in red. And we'll say this, if you like, as a prayer. We are all members of one body. We all drink with one, of one spirit. We're all called to one hope. We all serve one Lord. We all stand together in one faith. We all share together in one baptism. We're all children of one Father. That's our prayer this morning, but I asked if we could conclude this morning with communion. Because communion represents the shared meal of Christ just an hour or so before that reading we had from John 17. He shared something very special with the disciples to unite them as a group because he knew he was about to leave them. 
And the words of communion ring out particularly to me as we come this morning hungry and thirsty. Hungry to become part of the body of Christ. Thirsty to be washed by the blood of Christ. In a minute, David's going to preside over communion. And he will break the bread. The bread at the moment is in four pieces on the table. By the time it's served out here, it'll be in 75 pieces. The body of Christ, broken for you. Each of us individually can take of the body and eat. And that's a personal transaction, a personal recognition between you and God that you elect to become part of the broken body of Christ. But what I'd like you to do is with the piece of paper that you took earlier on, if you feel able, after you've taken the bread and taken the wine, I'd like you to tear up the piece of paper. Because communion together serves another purpose. It's not just a personal transaction between you and between God. As you're served communion this morning, we'll take 75 pieces of the broken body of Christ. And we can send them out of here in 75 different directions. Or through unity we can seek to restore to fullness, restore to wholeness the body of Christ. That's what us receiving communion is supposed to do. We don't leave Christ's body broken. Once we take our individual part of it, our response is not just to receive, but also to restore. If we leave this place united this morning, the broken body of Christ is restored to its fullness. It's restored to wholeness in and through us. And so to symbolize that, all I'd like you to do, if you feel able, is once you've received the bread and the wine, is to tear down the dividing wall between us this morning, between you and whoever it might be. And if you wish to, just leave it in front of the table as we leave and go on to what we're going to do next. The miracle of Christ, the miracle of salvation, is not just that he came to reconcile a fallen humanity with God, but that he came to reconcile and restore humanity one with another, to tear down the dividing wall. We're going to sing, and if the people who are serving communion could come up during that song, we'll then move on to communion.